Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Look, after my announcement a few weeks ago, you may not have been expecting any new episodes from me, and yet, here I am. What a kid, eh? (laughs) Well, actually, the reason is that the author and novelist Elizabeth Chadwick has rescued me by agreeing to talk to me about two of our favourite characters from medieval history, William Marshall and Eleanor of Aquitaine, and who, as you know, I'm covering for members in weekly Shedcasts at the moment. Elizabeth is a wonderful author, and she recently added to her books on William Marshall with one called Templar Silks a story that imagines what might have happened during the years William spent in the Holy Land in Outremer. She has written several novels also on Eleanor of Aquitaine, and she's also a blog which gives some brilliant insights. You can find Elizabeth's blog and all about her books at her website then, https colon forward slash forward slash elizabethchadwick.com, and I recommend it to you. So, We have two interviews for you. This week we talk about William Marshall, which is thoroughly suitable, of course, because this week members will find the first episode about William in their feed. Next week, Elizabeth then talks about Eleanor. I hope you enjoy them both. And don't forget that website again, elizabethchadwick.com. Right, well, I'm very lucky to be here together with Elizabeth Chadwick. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, David. The occasion for us having a chat was the publication last year of Templar Silks, which I've read, really enjoyed. And so that was the idea. But then, of course, you've written so much about Eleanor of Aquitaine and the period and William Marshall that uh, I thought it'd be great if we could have a chance to talk to you. Yes, of course, sure, yeah. Yeah. Great. So, thinking about William Marshall first, what drew you to him as a character? Um, It was curiosity. Whenever I come to a character I'm going to write about, I want to know who they are, what they can tell me about themselves, and what they can tell me that they perhaps never told anyone before while remaining with historical veracity. With William Marshall, I'd written written something like 25 novels. I need to count them up to find out. Right. (laughs) And you keep coming across him. You can't not write about the 12th century and and not come across William Marshall. And so I I became interested in him and thought... For the next novel that I was contemplating, my next contract, you really need um, a character that's up there and writ large for commercial fiction. And I thought, well, what about William Marshall? Yeah. Um, and so I began reading what was available, biographies that were out there. There was um, Sidney Painter, um, George Duby, 
and um, of course uh, David Crouch at the time and uh, the more I read the more I thought well this is really interesting and as I began writing I realised that you know I'd got a lot more in my hands than just another subject for a novel what an amazing man Were there any sort of conceptions about William Marshall that you quickly saw or you eventually saw were, were different than the public perception? I think the public perception is probably a very broad stroke. He was, uh, you know, the greatest knight. He did all this jousting. Yeah. Everybody focuses on that jousting. Yes. But it's only, when you look at it, quite a narrow part of his life. Um, it was the young man side, and he did so much more as a magnate, as a lord of Ireland. It, it was it was finding more nuance to the man, I think. I mean, I began out just by thinking, this is, will be a good story to write. Look at all this daring do. Look at what he yes. got up to. Ne- and nearly hanged as a child. All this jousting stuff, serving kings, going to the Holy Land. Um, you know, what a story. And it is a story. Um, but there's so much more going on behind that. Um, and there's William the man with all his talents and his frailties. And so it interested me finding right. the new ones. So whenever I write a novel, there's what, the part of the asking, who are you? Mm. It's looking under the surface. There's always that superficial layer, especially when you come to broad brushstroke popular history. Mm. Um, and you can just perhaps make a couple of points about a person but there's always more depth than that to yeah. anybody once you get to know them So did you grow to like William Marshall? Very much so I suppose as much because looking at it looking at the, the, the underneath at the, at the floors and things and the, the, things, the things he had to juggle when you look at his honour you find that it's very frequently self-serving but at the same time it doesn't do any harm to anyone so it's got that sort of a uh, uh, light-coloured Luke Walker, Luke, uh, Luke Skywalker lightsaber. Right. Whereas I always see Simon de Montfort as having a having um, a Darth Vader lightsaber. So it was interesting just just looking un- underneath. Right. So I think one of the in- things I found interesting about Templar silks was the amount of time you spent building the relig- the picture of a religious man. Was yeah. that just a knowledge of the 12th century? Or was that things that William both? Did? Shortly after William died, his son commissioned a poem to be written about him, written about his father's life, mm. which is twenty thousand lines long, and you get little hints in this poem, which was told within. It was published, finished yes. being had being written by 1226, yeah. which is within um, seven years of William's death. Mm. So it's ba- based on eyewitness reports, and you see these just underlying little nuances about religion. He doesn't make an enormous thing about it but you can see how important it was to him and what it must have been to join the Templars um, he only took people say oh, well, he only took the vows on his deathbed and you know what does that cost a man but you can see from other just little hints and nuances that he had been probably a Templar follower at least since his time in the Holy Land 30 years earlier and um, I think there's very much a fear of hell in William mm. and that if he doesn't do the right thing and line up all his ducks in a row, mm. he could very well be going to hell right. what he's done in what he had done in his life. Yeah. There are things that the Histoire um, skips over that he may have done in his life, and that's um, the pillaging and burning he may well have done with Henry the Young King. We get none of that in, in the Histoire, but you know that he must have done it. Yeah. There's the robbing of the shrine at Rockmador, which I think was a real watershed for him when the Young King died. I think his visit to the Holy Land was to keep the Young King out of hell, and to keep himself out of hell as well. He was still seeking your assurance on his deathbed. Going back to his life and the progression, you mentioned them yes. also be, almost being hung when he was a, when he was a nipper. Yes. And then he makes this transformation from the fourth son of a reasonably minor baron into a reasonably major figure in the household. Right. 
Talk talk through how that happened. People say his his father was his father was not a minor baron. Right. His father was um, probably middle range, and but he was the the royal marshal first King Stephen, then the Empress Matilda. His brother, that's his father's uh, William Marshall's uncle, was um, Empress Matilda's chancellor. William Marshall's mother's sister, so that's his auntie, was married. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's still getting mother's brother. <laughs> yes, <laughs> William's Mar- Mar- William Marshall's auntie yeah. was married to Louis the Seventh's brother. Another of William Marshall's uncles was um, Archbishop of Palermo, so he was a man with very good yeah. family connections. So that sense that I think quite a lot of people have that he's kind of made good in yes. some way, is, he, you don't think is... he has? Oh yes, he, he. I think he did make good, right. but he wasn't at the bottom of the ladder. Yeah. He, he got several steps up the rungs with his particularly with connections. So he got as a fourth son to go and train with one of the in one of the top households in Normandy. So that's that's good for starters. Mm. And then obviously he his next thing was to was to come home when he found himself as a student qualified um, graduate without a job at the right, end of it. Yes. Uh, he went to a few tourneys and did a bit of mucking about, but went home and uh, went to his uncle Patrick gave him a job. Now his uncle Patrick was the Earl of Salisbury, so that's another yes. you know good connection. Uncle Patrick uh, was just about to go off to um, Poitou to govern on behalf of Eleanor Aquitaine um, and Henry II as the big shadow behind it all. And so he joined his household. He needed fighting men. So off to Poitiers he went. Then, of course, there was the, the moment when he, he and his uncle were escorting Eleanor Aquitaine on one mm. of the journeys and they were attacked by the Delusignon family who were in rebellion. And William saw his uncle killed in front of him. Mm. He was a young knight. He fought like like the blazes, for his own life, I suppose, but for Eleanor of Aquitaine, so that she could escape, and he was taken prisoner by the Lusignons. Mm. Eleanor of Aquitaine recognised a good man and took him on. When she paid his ransom to the Lusignons, right. took him into our household, and from 1168 to 1170, he was Eleanor of Aquitaine's household knight. Now, obviously, um, his skills, um, the jousting skills, the fighting skills, were, were, pr- were probably pretty damn good. Mm. She promoted him to become... The tutor in arms and in chivalry to her son and heir, Henry the Young King. Okay, so it's Eleanor who's responsible for that appointment. Uh, well, that possibly Henry. Thing. I mean, yeah. Henry would have had had full say because it's his heir as well. Yeah. But Eleanor would have those two years serving Eleanor seen, yeah. would have had Eleanor would have gone. Oh, mm. I think you know. Yes, there's this um, chap, this here, this chap yeah. here who's, um, and he very clearly got on with with people. Um, he was very much a people person. Mm. They think he could get on with anyone, and he clearly got on with youngsters. Um, or teenage lads, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so he was uh, an excellent choice, and a marshal by birth, yeah. which means that you are the marshals were organisers, stables, horses, putting the show on the road, and organising the household. The ushers were under their control, mm. for example. Right. The people who get to, who get to say who comes in to see the king. Um, you know, That's a position watch out. Some yes. power, then, yeah. Yes, it's the uh, same as you <coughs> know, and disarming people before they come in and making sure nobody comes in with a knife in, mm. in or anything. So, uh, so he's from that tradi- that family tradition as well. He knows horses extremely mm. well. Um, he knows how to mobilise. He's a military man. He's paying. He's sorting out later on, sorting out payment of mercenaries and mm. things. So it's quite an important job. But as a young man, this responsibility was to train up the young king in arms and uh, teach him to be chivalrous, really. So, what was that relationship like then with Henry II? That, as you said, is so important. Henry was his the boss that everybody answered to. With Henry, with Henry II, um, well, his, William's first responsibility, he seemed, while he was serving the young king, was always to the young king, mm. but answering to Henry II. And I think he had to tread a fine line between loyalty to, the, to both of them. That must have been really quite a difficult thing yeah. to do. 
and sometimes when push came to shove he went with the young king but um, was probably casting apologetic or dear glances <laughs> yes. towards Henry yeah. um, right, and Henry quite sometimes gave William the blame for because there had to be a scapegoat and William sometimes got the blame for leading the young king in, into into ways that Henry would not lead him into, such as the, like spending too much money and um, probably having these big ideas. Yes, I think that's true. I don't know. Yeah, uh, the, the histoire, if I remember rightly, and I might not do, uh, has seems to paint a slightly rocky relationship. But so at one stage, doesn't one marshal get accused of having an affair with the young king's wife? Yeah, no, yeah. Not Henry. Yes, Sorry. he did. Uh, I think I think William probably overrated himself on the battlefield. I mean, when you're the young king and you're, you're um, dressed up like a Christmas tree and yeah. going out on the field, you want the glory to come to you. And when you've got your um, ten years older master in arms, mm. who's, who's really the big cheese with the weaponry, um, shouting, um, you know, I think it was um, God help the marshal. Um, Dexter Maréchal, you can go. Oh, he's stealing my yeah, thunder! He's stealing, right. uh, and then apparently some courtiers made up this sleazy story that he was mm. having an affair with the young king's wife. We don't know if that's true or not because yeah. there's no proof either way. Um, the only thing is that we, if we know that um, when Eleanor of Aquitaine's niece had an affair with somebody when she was married, um, the husband took the guy and hung him upside down. Had, had him beaten by the town butchers right. and then hung upside down in a sewer to suffocate. Okay. So William would know that he was playing very dangerously right. if he did. And why would he? You know, he, I think he was quite savvy enough to um, not go and get, um, have an affair with the young king's wife. He'd have to be pretty mad, wouldn't he? Yes. He'd have to be, uh... But for whatever reasons, William was out of favour and was banished and the other courtiers um, moved into his place, probably the ones who'd set him up. And William went to the shrine of the three kings at Cologne which is quite telling because people pray to them if they've been wrongly accused. Hmm. So then he goes to the Holy Land, which is what he writes yes. about in, in yes. Temple Silks. He was also, I have to say, when he was banished, he was offered yeah. jobs all over Europe. He wasn't Oh, is Europe. that right? Yes, the Count of Flanders said, you can stay right. with me. Okay. Baldwin uh, Bethune's father said, you can right. marry my daughter and be my son. Right. You know. And William Refute declined it all. Um, so he came back to the young king, uh, who was fighting with his dad again, and, and with Richard the Lionheart and was in trouble and needed good military backing. So he was like, oh, all is forgiven, come back. Yeah. Which, again, he wouldn't have done if he'd been, you know, True. carrying on with yeah. his wife. So William returned, the shrine of Rockmador was robbed, the young king went down with dysentery, end of game. Mm. But he asked William to take his cloak and cross to the Holy Land. So that was it, William was off on... Mm. William agreed to do it, and once the young king had been decently buried, twice, uh, um, yeah. he... Uh, he embarked on a on a journey to the Holy Land to take this pilgrim's cross. To and we don't we don't know much in detail about what he did. So absolutely you have nothing. to think it through and decide what. Um, absolutely nothing. The book. Uh, there's twenty thousand lines in Eastward Guillaume le Maréchal, and out of those twenty thousand, only twenty cover the entire period. Right. It, that's, it's I've written uh, actually a blog piece called "What Happens in the Holy Land Stays in the Holy Land." Right. Because there's more or less a silence. And even the lines in the Eastoir are not accurate um, because they talk about him bidding a fond farewell to King Guy de Lusignan. But he couldn't have done because he was back in England. We know from charter evidence he was back in England months before Guy de Lusignan ever became king. But but you you can work out things that he may have done quite strongly, um, such as the fact that he was so in cahoots with the the English and um, French royal courts that he would surely have taken letters from the 
king of England, the king of Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem being Henry II's cousin, Baldwin, the king of Jerusalem at this time was a leper. So they were looking for a new king, a new king to come and take over, yeah. um, because it was the, the nearest heir was a five-year-old child um, whose mother was the king's sister and whose stepfather was the dreaded Guy de Lusignan, mm. with whom William had had run-ins uh, back home. We also know um, that Saladin, at this time, attacked the castle of Kerak. Right. He did it twice. And definitely on the second attack, which was both times were driven off by the, um, by the um, Christians in Jerusalem, we know from the second one that the Grand Master of the, the Templars organised for visiting foreign knights mm. to, to join the relief army. So it seems highly likely we know William was there then, and it's very likely that he was at least... A, at at least one siege of Karak, if not both. The only other thing we know is that he obtained his burial shrouds while he was in in the Holy Land, Mm. and that they were two pieces of silk, and that they were so important to him um, that he kept them for 30 years. Mm. He didn't tell anyone about them, though, not even his wife or close family. He just, on his deathbed, told a retainer to go and fetch these pieces of cloth from um, a particular castle, Mm. I think... From the description, it was probably Chepstow, and uh, to bring them to him uh, while he was dying at Cowersham. He just got them out in front of his men, who were like, whoa, what's this? And uh, opened out these two pieces of silk and said, I want to be wrapped in these when I was buried. When I was in Jerusalem, I gave my body to be buried by the Templars wherever I should die. So it's clear that um, he had made some sort of covenant with the Templars when he was in Jerusalem, that he expected he might die when he was in Jerusalem and that these burial shrouds he kept for 30 years were extremely important to him, yeah. which is hence the novel's title, Templar Silks, yeah. and that they definitely have something to do with the Templars. The year before he died, he also commissioned some, uh, a Templar cloak to be made and hid it in the wardrobe and again told no one, not even right. his wife. So it must have been a terrific shock to his family yeah. to suddenly have this very sick man suddenly saying, go to the wardrobe and get out mm. my cloak and oh, look and here are my burial shrouds that I've not told any of you about. Yeah. You know, so he's been married for getting on for 30 years. Yeah, so there's something very fundamental and very important Extremely. about what happened there. And Templars, I mean, Templar vows, the full Templar vows were chastity, poverty, obedience, isn't it? But Templars had a, had a thing where you could you could sign up for a short space of time and you didn't have to follow the vows quite so closely, right. but you would serve them. Um, or you could serve them in a secular way, like like people are friends of the so and so trust. Uh, yes. You know, you know, friends right. of this library. You so you did did sort of grunt work for them, but you weren't actually one of them. I suspect that's what he did in the Holy Land. I suspect he was a, a friend of the Templars, mm-hmm. and also the family had Templar connections. His father gave lands to the Templars um, at, on his manor of Rockley mm-hmm. um, as a friend. Of, right. Uh, so I think the family had Templar associations right. that went back into William's childhood. Okay, great. So, he, and then he comes back from the Holy Land. He goes straight yeah. back to Henry II. Actually, gave him some money to go to the Holy Land. Right. But which William may well have put, put up two horses to get the money because he left his two best destriers with with Henry, who gave him a hundred pounds. I think. So I think you paint him as uh, Henry driving a rather hard. hard I think he did. I, I think um, I think Henry did paint uh, paint uh, do do so. Um, nobody gets something for nothing with Henry. No. Um, but when he came back, Henry gave him land up in the Lake District, um, round where he where Cartmel Priory was built, and also wardships. That means um, young people who were uh, not within their majority um, and the right to administer their lands and even provide them with marriages. And so at this time, William takes on John Durley, 
who was to be become his squire at first and then his lifelong friend. And also um, Hawise of Lancaster um, and Kendall, um, who I think Henry thought he might, William might think about marrying right. and make a life in the Lake District up around Cartmel. Um, but William didn't marry her. He did go up to Lake District, and there are a couple of charters from there that show he was right. up there. But Henry then was having his own troubles abroad and decided he needed a good fighting man and uh, wrote, to, wrote to William. He says something like, you're always asking me for more land and, and right. influence. Now, is that right? Yeah, he does write that, yeah. um, which Thomas Asbridge says that, says that William whines about, but I, I can't see right. William whining at all. <laughs> you know, he sounds like a child in a supermarket, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, that sound good, yeah. Um, I don't think he whined. I think it was the, the, the power play. William wasn't especially happy to be stuck up in the Lake District mm. when things were going on down in the south and he'd always been near the court. But Henry was like, you come and help me and I will give you. And he offers him, um, initially, a lady called Denise de Chateau, who, right. um, who was a huge heiress on the on the borders, border regions that were being fought over. Uh, but then there was a bit of um, uh, auctioneering going on. It ended up the promise being Isabel de Clare, mm. um, Countess of Chepstow. She didn't have Pembroke at the time. Right. You sometimes see it written that she did. But right. Um, William was given Pembroke working John in 1199. Right. And then we get this other uh, key event, it seems, where Henry II and his sons are having their, their last run-in, and you have this famous meeting between Richard and, uh, and William. Oh, yes, it was. things weren't going well for Henry. He was very sick, um, very possibly with, a, with an anal fistula. Um, and he had to flee Le Mans, um, Fire, he fired the town as he fled. Richard the Lionheart came after his dad, determined to, to make an end of it. Yes. And uh, William turned to face him, you know, lance ready on his horse. And Richard had been so eager to catch up with his dad that he hadn't got his full armour on. I think they said he's just wearing a, a, a shorter metal cap and just lighter armour. And uh, he said, shouted out to William, don't kill me. Yes. It would be a bad thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> and William actually William replied um, I won't kill you, let the devil do that uh, killed his horse instead on him, charged him, rammed the lance into the horse and brought Richard down and then spun away and with Henry to safety to, brought to Chinon where of course Henry died It's an interesting event isn't it because if the histoire paints it correctly I don't know whether you think yeah. it does or not it's a very risky thing, a rather wild thing for yeah, William to say to the Heir to the throne, as it were. Yes. Do you think it does it ring true to you? That, I think so thing? because afterwards we have a scene in the church where William's mm. talking to his friends and saying, "Oh God," <laughs> with his head, yes. head in his hands, right. saying, "What have I done?" Yeah, basically, and they're, they're going, "Oh, don't worry, it'll be all right." <laughs> <laughs> so I think even if it might have been slightly exaggerated, um, I, I think so because yeah. Richard recognised in William a man who was loyal to death, loyal to the death. So that's interesting, isn't it? I was going to make... The, the, there's a theme of pattern emerging, isn't it? You know, loyalty. He, he stuck with Henry the Young King when maybe yes. he should have been thinking and about it. And that was it. to stuck the death. With, yeah, he stuck with Henry the Second. To the death. And, yes. you know, that is a theme of his... And yet, I get the impression that David Crouch is less convinced by that. And, yes, the fact, there is loyalty there, but it's loyalty, as you said, in... In defence of self-interest. I think with King John it was definitely loyalty in defence of self-interest. I think with Richard the Lionheart it was uh, Richard and William were men who understood each other well and could do business together. Mm. Uh, And I think so, perhaps probably with Henry II too. Right. Um, Although he was, 
speak, but he knew what Henry was like. Henry was a harsh master, but um, but more so with Richard. I think he was on a level playing field with Richard. Right. He knew exactly, and and Richard knew his man exactly too. I think they were well well fitted military right. men who knew what knew the deal. Mm. And also, he was Eleanor of Aquitaine's man, I think. Mm. It's a strong relationship that's not mentioned a lot, because yeah. the Eastois is very complimentary of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Right. Um, and it even tells us things that nobody else tells us, like but her name is an amalgam of pure and gold, it says. Mm. You know, there's little things that come out. She's never, ever rubbished in the Eastois. Mm. Which is interesting, because she does get a deal of rubbishing. Uh, yes. she not? Yes. yes. I think there was loyalty to Eleanor as mm. well, which, which drove William, because... When uh, Richard went on crusade, William was left behind as one of the men in Eleanor's cabinet, if you like. Right. And you can see Eleanor saying, I want him in my cabinet. Yeah. And you know, he was thoroughly loyal to Eleanor throughout that, that period as well. And to John, actually, more so than Longchamp. And, of course, there's, that, uh, there's supposed to have been an argue, uh, discussion between Hubert Walter, Archbishop of Canterbury, who was a very able man, and William Marshall as Richard was dying as to who, who they should um, tell mm. advise everyone to... Um, uh, promote as the next king of England because of course we got Arthur who yeah. was uh, Richard's nephew who at one time Richard had said he wanted to be king after him but so William Marshall has to make a decision mm. Arthur the uh, young prince has been brought up by the French and knows nothing mm. and has no interest in William Marshall or John who William has known all of his life who is Anna of Aquitaine's son mm. um, who's he going to who's, who's going to give me the best deal so you're weighing it in the balance yeah. who should I put my power behind 15-year-old boy who I don't know and who, yeah. who's not necessarily on my side, yeah. or King John, who's the devil I do know. Hmm. So you think William was as much a kingmaker as that, very influential in John succeeding to the throne? Well, John rewarded him with the earldom of Pembroke. Hmm. He needed William's support, because William was a, seen as a an honest guy who people would listen to. Right. Everyone was willing to listen to what William Marshall had to say, hmm. which is... Uh, evidenced out throughout the you know at the end of John's reign or after when William was being regent mm. the country pulled together behind him so he got the gift of the gab if you yeah. like the gift of persuasion so you needed William Marshall on your side to tell right. everybody that you needed to be king right so uh, being a kingmaker sounds a little bit dramatic and, yes sorry um Ricardian somehow <laughs> I was being Ricardian myself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, it's within. I think it's on the same page. Right. Okay. Great. Yeah. But they fall out at some stage, don't they? Uh, yes, it's over France that they, right. they fell out because William had all this land in Normandy and he could see it disappearing as John lost Normandy. And of course, William wanted to keep it because um, he was very prolific as a father and had five sons, and you know he had fine land for them all. Um, and so he did homage to the King of France and then pretended it was a mm. sort of a minor sort of homage that right. didn't really didn't matter, matter right. and uh, John got a bit knocked by all this and then they had a row about it and uh, also John had been dabbling his fingers in Ireland and had been sort of misappropriating lands and putting his finger in lands that were, were mm. not perhaps quite you know officially his so when William decided he was going to Ireland to sort out Leinster which would belong to his wife that's a big chunk of Southern Ireland yeah. Um, John was like, "Oh, I don't really want Marshall going meddling in there. I'll, um, I won't. I'll tell him he can't go." And William went anyway. So John, being very suspicious of William because of France, because of Ireland, mm. took two of his sons hostage. Uh, William said, "Okay, fine. Um, if you bandage your finger, this is what he's supposed to actually have said. Yeah. If you bandage your finger that's not injured, it's still the same when you take the bandage off." And John was not at all happy about all this, and 
Uh, William was under a cloud for quite a bit. William had got a very sharp economical brain as far as making money went. I think he'd been short of money as a youngster and um, by gum he was never going to be short of money again if he could help it. Um, And Ireland needed developing. If he died, then his wife had to have something to live on. Hmm. Um, And so... I think Ireland, the bath tracks that were in her, were part of her dower. Yeah. So he had to eat. Ireland was underdeveloped and it had problems of um, ownership which needed mm. all sorting out. So that had to be done. Also, King John was having trouble with the church and it had been put, un- been put under interdict. And it was like, well, we can get away from the interdict by going right. to Ireland. There's all that. There's, John's not very happy with me because of France and I'll probably just shuffle off quietly for a mm. bit and, you know, uh, kick some butt in Ireland yeah. and get it all sorted were and keep out of the way for a bit right but john chip pursued him to ireland and so there were again more more problems mm. but william and isabel rode them out at the time while william was in ireland he founded the port of new ross right and um, which was up river from um john's own port but uh, william adjusted the tolls which made them a lot more favorable for people to come up the river to new ross and ignore right. john's port right. i mean it's quite interesting because there's a big risk isn't there about a huge risk yes. defying the king in those days mm. you could lose everything uh, but, but he actually took it so he took it i think um, he realized that john needed him as much right. as he okay. needed john it was a political calculation it was a political calculation yes he was quite a political player yeah. a sharp political player um, and i think that going to ireland he, things had to be done in ireland right um, and uh, he took that risk. He got a lot of friends at court. He had a big faction at court, um, and he thought that, you know, he could probably right. um, ride it out, it, it ride it out and, and take that risk. And then, so then we get to that last period in his life where uh, Magna Carta, the revolt of the barons, right. and he stays with John. John summoned him back to, to ask him for help, and he came and said yes, but i think i think he'd perhaps thought about it mm. because there is a letter from john saying and beware of any ships that come from ireland from william marshall because they may be a danger right so john um, thinks he might john thought at one point but at the height of his paranoia john thought that william mm. might actually come and attack him yeah but william didn't william um mm. came came to his aid mm. um he must have had a good think about it i mean his wife isabel was very anti-john right um from what we can tell but um William chose to support John. Which reminds me of a question I was going to ask you. Um, In the books, you write about quite a strong relationship between Isabel Mm. and William. Uh, Do we know what do we know about that relationship? Um, We know again. It's it's just picking up delicate little little hints from the East War. Several times she's mentioned in the East War as being present and having a voice in his inner council. Right. So he's consulting her. when she, she she was heavily pregnant when he was summoned away to court to answer for answer to for various things to King John, he left her in Ireland, and um, he says um, I have nothing without her. Right. Um, I think you can take that as as a political yeah. statement as, rather than a um, you know a Valentine's so, well, Day statement. Yeah, indeed, yeah. But there was I think there's some of that in it. Um, there's the ten children mm. as well. Um, which, I mean, I suppose they didn't have to love each other to get the children, but mm. when you add it up to the other things... Yeah. When he returned to Ireland, the East Wars says that she, his re- return was much to her taste, it right. said, and that, uh, you know, there's a, this really happy reunion. Um, they did have an argument about what he should do with the people who hadn't been as loyal in Ireland as mm. they'd hoped. She wanted to, you know, be, to be like, strung up, basically. Right, she was the hardliner then. She was the hardliner, and he said, no, right. um, I, I, I've done enough here. 
yeah. you know. But they were able to have these discussions. Yeah. Um, sometimes uh, he agreed with her, sometimes he didn't. But she'd had the rule of Ireland while mm. he was he yeah. was away. Um, and at the end of his life, when he died, um, she was with him. Um, there's a very touching scene in the Histoire which, um, where they're sobbing after mm. he's taken his Temple of Hours and she can no longer embrace him, mm. which is written in the Histoire, which... Um, when that happened, it was twelve nineteen, and the East War was written, was finished by twelve twenty six. So this is um, yes, this is recent. This history, is this yes. is recent history. Yeah. This, there were eyewitnesses to this, yeah. um, and also when he was at his funeral, she was in a collapsed, um, uh, very unwell state, mm. um, and she actually died less than a year after he died, mm. although she was twenty years younger. Right. Um, so yeah. it probably so took a big toll on the body. So there were some there are some very good pointers. Yeah. That they were um, a strong and loving partnership, which, um, given the state of arranged marriages and the fact that they never yeah. they hadn't met on the day they married, right, or, yeah. or they'd only met the day before they married. Um, and the other thing is, that, well, the consideration was that after they married, he took her away for a month to um, like a country house um, to get to know each other, right. have a honeymoon, if you like. Right. You know, um, so get married and yes. then not straight back into business so this is not a man who I suppose is also a bit of his reputation which is kind of very military slightly dense unfeeling sort of blood, think, you know, slightly, yes. but not like that at all then no George, George Duby sort of makes him out to be dense I read his biography yeah. once and then basically wall banged it right um, no he's he's very very intelligent very sharp and very understanding of people you couldn't be dense and bring it get everyone behind you yeah. and do what he did you have to have a really incisive, clear mind. He wouldn't have be, uh, served the Angevins from mm. 1168 to well, 1219 yeah. without having those skills. He got and emotional intelligence as well. He I think, got well, yeah. emotional intelligence, yeah. he got people <clears throat> skills, and he got military ability. I think he had those in spades, mm. and that's, that's not, not hero-worshipping. Yeah. I think when you look at the evidence of what he did in his life and who he served... Mm. Um, it would have been been game over if he hadn't any of those yeah. at some point earlier. Okay, so we were at the sort of final bit. He supported John throughout. Yeah. John dies uh, crossing the wash, and he is at that point very important to England's future, isn't he? That's right. He was already in the obviously in the in the field fighting because there was civil war in the country. The French had invaded and um, had taken over London and were threatening Dover. Had got as far as Lincoln, where the famous Nicola de la Haye was. Hold, yeah. Council of Lincoln was holding out against the French. William Marshall was made Regent of England mm. by a decision of the barony. The only fly in the ointment was the Earl of Chester, who was a bit younger and quite bolshy and strong-willed, but everybody preferred to follow William Marshall. Mm. Um, I, I think that I think that's true, but I think it's a little bit over-egged in the in the right. story. But William Marshall, the Eastwar claim, didn't want the job as such um, because he was around, getting on towards seventy, mm. if not already seventy. Uh, and it was a, it was a quite a big ask, and apparently he cried when when offered the job and said, I said um, "Look at me, I'm an old man, and mm. and the boy has no money." This is the nine year old Henry the yeah. Third. You know, it, it's a lost cause. And then everybody came into him, his his close close counters the men, and said, "You know, like buck up, get on with it. <laughs> right. uh, you no, you know, if you can't, you can do it." You're the only one. Yes. And so he sort of wiped his eyes, had a stiff drink, and (laughs) said, "Okay, (laughs) let's go." Yeah. Um, And took over the regency, and basically got people talking. He sorted out. They got no money, but he he investigated what John had got at various castles in the royal treasury, Mm. and used that to pay the mercenaries 
by various hand-to-mouth methods, kept the country running. Mm. Um, and then it was up to, uh, he decided to go, go up to Lincoln, um, where the, right, the French were threatening Lincoln Castle, and to go for a battle. Um, one of his ideas was, as they got, get, got within sight of Lincoln, he told every all the, the baggage train, mm. gave them all banners and said, look, right. we're going to look twice the size we are. Right. So he was handing out, you know, banners to the washerwomen yes. and what have yeah. you and wave these and shout. Yeah. So so they think there's a huge, mighty host coming um, to put the wind up them. Then they found a way to break into Lincoln because this, this lot didn't come out to fight. Mm. They all went back into Lincoln, the French. Mm. Uh, but he found a way in through a blocked up doorway um, or one of his, you know, um, associates did. And uh, that was it, street fighting. Yeah. Um, William got so excited at one point that he, he was supposed to put his helmet on before he went into battle and he forgot. And his squire had to come running up and say, right, oh, so he's got your here's your helmet. <laughs> and he, William was like, oh, God, and put his helmet on. And, uh, Which um, era um, has a little res- resonance with that lovely story in his younger days with the, the he battered got, up helmet and how yes. he put his head on an anvil and... Uh, that always amuses me that as a young knight he got his head stuck inside his helmet and had to have it pried off by a blacksmith yeah. on an anvil. And in the meantime, he'd won the main pr- main prize of the tourney, right. which was an enormous fish, a giant pike. And uh, so people were wandering around with this fish on a salver trying to find him <laughs> and finally found him at the armoury. So the first thing he would have done when he when he finally got his helmet off and drew a gulp of air was the sight of this fish on a fish, plate. Fish, which I think I'd have been a little bit disappointed about, to be honest. Uh, as a tawny prize, but, but there you go. It appears in the Knight's Tale. I don't know if you've ever watched that film. I've seen a Knight's Tale. Yes. Film? Well, yeah. they do. They obviously take that story when Heath Ledger has his. Um, yes. Has to. They do have the whole quotes thing. from the East War in Knight's Tale. I love that. Movie. That bit where you've got you've been measured and found wanting. Right. That's from the East War oh, Irish. That, right? that is amazing. An amazing film because you can watch it on so many levels. Right. If you know your medieval history. You can hear all these hmm. bits that have been sneaked into the script. Yeah. I love that. I love that movie. So we're there. So he's the the unity candidate. The in unity candidate. Yes. He? Yeah. Everybody. Um. Uh, yeah. Gets behind him, and uh, yes. Yeah, so he kicked the French out. There was another big sea battle at Sandwich, which he didn't join in, but watched from the shore, and that was the the end of it. Louis was brought to terms, although England had to pay a fine. Hmm. Politically, he's at the top yes. of the tree. Though. Yes. He's he's the French have gone. They can start rebuilding the country, yeah. but then, of course, very shortly after that, perhaps the stress and strain of having to do all this mm. um, made him ill, and um, he became ill at the Tower of London um, in sort of the winter of 1218, and uh, the doctor said, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, mate, you've had it, and so he said, right, well, I'll be a lot more comfy at home than, than here, mm. and so he went to his favourite manor at Caversham to die. Um, I think he came to Caversham in the February and started... Um, tied up all the loose ends and handed over government to various different people mm. and sorted everything out, telling the young Henry III that he hoped he died died um, an early death rather than become like some certain wicked ancestor. Right. Okay. King John. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, which is perhaps on his deathbed what he really thinks about King John, yeah. even though he served him. And um, then, uh, so February to Caversham, and he died in mm. May. Mid, mid-May. And his death, um, if I remember right, it's a bit of a state occasion about his funeral, isn't there? Was his funeral, yes, it was, a, it, he, it was in procession. He had to, right. um, they went to, uh, he lay in state at Reading and there were a couple of other places they stopped, I can't right. remember. Um, but he finally came to the Temple Church in London right. where he wanted to be buried. 
and he was yeah. and that's where his uh, his resting place so at the end of that when you look back what is william marshall you know a, a, a fantastic story or does he have any particular relevance to us now what what do you take out of the um, well story yes it is it's absolutely it's an amazing fantastic story of a man who would have been um i think amazing and fantastic when whatever century he lived mm. in I sometimes think of him in, in terms of being the 13th century Nelson Mandela. Getting everyone together and not having bitterness or begrudging. Right. He could be a blank slate and go, OK, you know, we, we've not got on, but we've got to do this. Right. We can't go forward unless we do this. Mm. And you get that quite strongly from, from um, the Eastoir and, 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 and reading, reading round. That's what I, yeah. I, I get from it, and, and mm. honour. So there was always this um, this thing of... Doing doing things for yourself, but doing things for good, yeah. and not not harm. Okay, so that, that's William Marshall. Thank you very much. That's really right. good. Event. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, then everyone. Good luck, and we'll be back next week with Eleanor. in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.